This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 101. Hi, veterinary friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Before I get to my special guest this week, I just want to say a couple of things to you about what's coming up in the next few weeks. I have guests the whole month of December, and we're talking to different veterinarians in different aspects of the field so we can get a perspective on what we've all been going through and what we can do to make life better in 2021. So saying that, I want to let you know that I am planning to have two group classes starting in January. One is going to be specifically dedicated to those of us that want to lose a little bit of weight in the new year and explore the reasons why we overeat and stress eat. Um, So it will be more focused on weight loss and understanding the reason that we stress eat and overeat and buffer with food. The other class will be set up for those of us that would like to set goals in 2021. We feel like we're kind of stuck. We haven't been making any progress. The days just seem to get away from us, and that happens to me a lot. So this class will be focused on getting unstuck setting some big goals and moving forward into 2021 with a better attitude. So both of these classes will be limited. So email me if you're interested or go to my website and sign up so I can get you on the list. Each class will be six weeks in a row in the evening. So it should work around your busy schedule. But if it doesn't work, I can always get you into an individual slot if you want individual coaching. So reach out to me if you're interested in either one of these subjects or if you would like more information, I'd be happy to share with you. I'm really excited about doing these group classes. It's something that I don't do often. I usually have individual coaching, but I just thought because this year has been so crazy and there have been a lot of changes that we really need something positive to start out the new year. So that is why I'm doing these group classes. The format will be on Zoom as a webinar, so it's not scary at all. It's super easy. So join me. I'd appreciate you being there. If you need coaching before that, or you just want to talk and learn a little bit more about life coaching and what that's all about, send me an email at jacapeldvm at gmail.com and we'll talk. So thanks for listening to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast and let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today on the podcast, I have a very special guest. His name is Matt Kuhn and he is a DVM PhD and he works for government and um, he's going to explain all that to us and welcome to the podcast, Matt. Really happy to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I've listened for you know, a long time now, ever since I did the Power of 10 Leadership Academy with you at the MVMA. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm excited to finally be able to join you. Cool. Thank you so much. I'm excited that you listen. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder if anybody's out there, but I do appreciate the people that are listening to me. I really do. This is fun for me. So I'm really glad you wanted to come on the podcast. So can you tell me and the audience, um, I know some about you, but can you tell us about yourself a little bit? Sure, absolutely. 
Um, so I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, and uh, after high school, went to Michigan State for about the next 11 years. I kind of fell in love with it immediately. And so uh, I started with a bachelor's degree there in animal science. And that's really where I fell in love with animals and especially dairy cattle. Um, and during that time, my undergrad, I you know thought I wanted to go into research, uh, animal research. And so that uh, school was kind of in my head, the logical track to go with. Um, so after my bachelor's degree, I vet school right away. Um, and uh, pretty soon after starting vet school, I also started a PhD because I wanted to go into research. Um, so my PhD it's pretty was ambitious. <laughs> it was. Um, it was a lot at the time, and it was a lot of kind of uh, switching my brain back and forth between uh, you know clinical medicine and research because it is two very different ways to approach problems, some very technical, some very broad. Um, but it was during that time that I also kind of realized I didn't want to go into research anymore. I, I hadn't fallen in love with it like I thought I had. Uh, and that was really what drove me towards uh, non-clinical practice um, and really science policy. And so ever since early in vet school, early in my PhD, I've focused all of my extracurricular time really trying to uh, learn about communication, learn about a lot of the soft skills, and apply my skills in veterinary medicine or public health and research to more of a science for policy career. Okay. Um, so I finished my DVM in 2018, and shortly thereafter, this summer, I finished my PhD. And um, uh, along that time, I had several different experiences outside of the clinic. I worked with FDA, FDA, um, industry partners, uh, non-governmental organizations, and got to really experience a lot of a lot of people that feed into the animal health industry um, that aren't necessarily all veterinarians themselves, and ended up with a, um, a science fellowship that I'm in now. So I'm a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow um, down in Washington, D.C., and in this position, I support the Department of Defense with uh, one of their publications of a peer-reviewed journal for um, DOD research. Mm. So explain that to me. Yeah, so... <laughs> I so don't know what all that of, means. <laughs> right. Um, so a lot of the research that happens at the Department of Defense is uh, classified or controlled in some manner. So it's not publicly available, um, but we still want to both be able to support authors to make sure that they can have career advancement through publication, but also we want to make sure that all of the research that's being funded with taxpayer dollars is really seeing the light of the day as much as it can and supporting other research and can be built upon. So the Department of Defense created this internal journal that's available to those with the proper credentials, um, whether you're in the Department of Defense or associated with as a contractor or an academia. Um, and so we publish our own journal and it's, it's peer reviewed, almost entirely internal, but it covers, um, you know, almost, well, it covers no veterinary medicine. So this is really an area where I've taken my skills that I've learned in vet school and my PhD, and now I'm applying them to a completely new field. So most of what the papers I'm reading and um, evaluating are about uh, either space or cyber warfare or um, different kinds of physics or engineering type studies. Um, so it's a lot of using the, the basics and the foundation of what I learned in my education and applying it uh, to very broad fields. Because your PhD was in dairy, is that, or some kind of science? Yeah, yeah. Is it dairy uh, science? Exactly. So my PhD was in, in immunology with dairy cattle and really focusing on 
um, kind of a very, a single enzyme in dairy cattle at a very specific time of their life. So it was extremely focused on a very, very small detail of dairy cattle. Um, and obviously that's not, it's not very broadly applicable when you study that type, but you can use a lot of skills you learned in developing your thesis and developing your projects and then apply those to other areas. Okay. All right. So how did you get interested in, and how did you find out about the DOJ and getting into the government and tell me that story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it really all started very early in vet school. I did a, um, a fly-in event with the American Veterinary Medical Association. So these are events where they, they draw in folks from all over the, the U.S. to D.C. and they kind of, they, the AVMA will educate you about, um, you know, what kind of bills are currently in Congress and could affect the veterinary industry. And then they have you go out and spoke, or speak to your legislature. And that was kind of the first time I understood the impact that policy being made in DC can have such an impact on the entire industry and really got me energized about this ability to um, use science to form policy. Um, and I, I think we see that now more than ever in the need for it. Um, but that's what really sparked my interest. And so after that, I came back to Michigan and I joined uh, the Michigan Veterinary Medical Association's Legislative Advisory Committee. And that's where I really got involved with how, you know, state policies can affect veterinary medicine because we deal with just as many issues on the state level as the federal. And so things really took off from there. Um, I started to get more involved outside of the legislative branch and seeing the executive branch, understanding how policies made at FDA or USDA can affect how we prescribe different um, pharmaceuticals, how you know animals are processed, how they're raised, uh, and really just kept my interest growing. Uh, and eventually that led me to, um, you know, trying to get a foot in the door in DC, if you will. And so the, the science and technology policy fellowships with the American association for the advancement of science, AAAS STPF, um, was kind of my way to do that. And so a lot of alphabet soup, right? <laughs> it is. That's acronyms are my life now down here. That's how we all yeah. live. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's really how I got my foot in the door with science policy. And so now I'm looking to kind of grow my career into other areas. And is that your goal to stay in the government in DC and, and continue to work government? Or what it, what is your ultimate idea about how this is all going to pan out after this fellowship? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm trying to stay as open as I can. I've already seen how how broadly I can apply my, my background. Obviously I'm working in nothing close to veterinary medicine yet. I'm, you know, I'm comfortable in the position I'm in. Um, so I'm, I'm open to seeing where things go. I definitely think in the future, I'd like to return to the animal health industry a little bit, whether that's in government or industry. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to either. Uh, but I, I think I'd like to get a little bit more closer to where, uh, I have my education. I'm comfortable with where I have a true passion for everything I'm doing. Um, I don't think I'll be in DC forever, um, but there are certainly a lot of non-clinical positions in policy or other um, type non-clinical jobs uh, everywhere around the US. Uh, so I don't see an issue in finding a position, hopefully back home in Michigan. So did you ever have a desire to do clinical medicine at all? Or was it, was it just kind of once you found out that you could um, be non-clinical, that was your, your goal? I, I don't think it's necessarily that I never had a desire to do it. I think, um, you know, I would have enjoyed clinical medicine, but there were a lot of, 
there was a lot of things that drew me away from it early on. Um, and so I never really gave it uh, a ton of thought or really considered it as a, um, a realistic path that I was going to place pretty early on in vet school. I decided I wasn't going to practice, um, and really focused a lot of my efforts on making sure I was learning how to apply a veterinary education to other fields. Um, you know, especially a lot of, you know, seeing a lot of veterinarians get burned out, seeing a lot of, you know, the way researchers were getting burned out. That's, that had a very significant impact on me early in vet school. Um, and it, it made me question, was that the life that I wanted to live? Is that, you know, what I wanted to go through? And a lot of times I saw veterinarians in other roles outside of practice and they were, you know, that's where I saw myself. That's where I saw being comfortable in the future was in one of those other roles. And really the first step I saw that was I did an externship with Zoetis. Um, and I saw how passionate everyone there was about their job, how they really felt like what they were doing was helping a large number of animals. Um, and that's what originally got me into involved in research and wanted to go into a field or into research. And I didn't end up going that direction, but that was kind of the first thing that drew me away from clinical practice into a non-clinical setting. And seeing just the opportunities that there are out there as well. Yeah, there I've, I mean, it's amazing over the years um, since I've been exploring this career field, how many different jobs I've seen veterinarians take on. So in my fellowship class alone, um, so I'm in the Department of Defense. There are other veterinarians in the Department of State, um, USDA, and USAID. Uh, previous fellows have served in Congress and pretty much every other uh, agency in the executive branch. Um, you know, it, it's amazing how how broadly you can apply the veterinary education uh, and, and still be very successful and very valuable and desired across not only government but industry as well. And I found, I mean, I've always been in clinical practice, but I found uh, a good outlet for this kind of um, maybe non-clinical bug that you get is being a part of the MVMA and the AVMA. And, you know, I, I think that being part of organized medicine is, um, is an, an actual outlet um, that some people could pursue because you did some of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I was on the legislative advisory committee with the MVMA. The MVMA. I think that was it, that's mostly practitioners that are on that and really guiding the policy, which is you know what we need. We need folks that are like you that are you know in the field, understand exactly what's happening, know how interactions with clients are going, what issues clients are facing, what our practices are facing, and can guide policy. Um, so I think that's very important. I've also um, you know been involved with AVMA in certain aspects at the kind of the more federal level and um, working with their policy creation or just working with how they view policy. Um, but, you know, to your point, the American Association of Bovine Practitioners, um, you know, swine veterinarians, I, sorry, I know a lot of large animal groups uh, more than the small, Yeah. but it, all of those groups are going to have committees that are going to tackle policy. They might not be a policy focused committee, but eventually most committees from associations are going to get involved in some way with policy. Um, and I think wonderful way that veterinarians can get involved if they have that itch they want to scratch, you know, to have their voice heard, to make a meaningful impact on veterinarians in our industry across the U.S., across your state. I think it's a great way to get involved. 
And the other thing that I found with that kind of involvement is it kind of changes things up a little bit and gets you um, more involved with the other professionals in your area. So when I first started in organized medicine, I did my local association, the Southeastern Michigan Veterinary Medical Association, and I kind of got involved with that. And then I moved on to the MVMA and then there's, you know, the AVMA and AHA, like you can do a lot um, on those committees. And I saw it as a way to not only broaden my own view of the profession and what can be done in the profession, even though it's not paying positions, but also as a way to meet other um, professionals. Like I have so many longtime friends that I met on different committees and different organizations, and I wouldn't have met you if I wasn't doing the power of 10. And so I, I really like to encourage um, veterinarians to step out of their practice um, because I think that that helps with mental health. I mean, what do you think about that? As far as you know, the the stress and the the stuff that we all feel is getting out of of that little bubble. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree completely. I think you know, there's a few aspects of this that are beneficial when you're networking with other other people that are in your industry or very close by. One is that you know you can kind of discuss with them the issues you have, and there's somebody you can vent to that really understands what you're going through. Um, I think that's one of the things you know, a lot of people struggle with is they don't know who to talk to because you can talk to your spouse sometimes or friends, but unless they're in the profession, they don't always necessarily, they don't really understand what you're going through. They don't quite get it. Um, so while they can sympathize, they might not be able to necessarily empathize. Um, and the other is that it gives you a chance to see, you know, what other folks are going through. Are, you know, are other practitioners facing the same challenges? Have they found ways to cope with some challenges? Are, there are things you're doing that maybe are making life harder on yourself and they have found ways to ease a burden or to get through something. And I think you know, the, more, the more you can grow your network and really try to learn from others and see how other people are tackling challenges is always going to be beneficial um, and always going to help you to cope the challenges you're dealing with. Yeah. And I found even in those groups, um, ideas for the way you're practicing are helpful. You know, if you're a practice owner, you talk to other practice owners, um, other associates who will give you their feedback on their boss and might change the way you do your bossing, you know, kind of thing. So I really do think that's important. Do you have um, uh, an idea about the way practitioners are dealing with this whole COVID thing and this, this, you know, it's, it's changed a lot in the way we're practicing. I'm sure it's changed a lot in the way you you're working, even in your, um, your fellowship. Do you have any thoughts on that and how this is affecting us and, um, how we can look at it? I think one thing we're learning is the, the value of taking care of our employees. Um, so for example, in a non-clinical role, I, I don't go into work at all pretty much. I've been working from home since I started this position, I've been into work three days total. Um, And, you know, I think one thing a lot of employers are learning is that people can be very successful from home in non-clinical roles, but we need to support them by, whether that's helping with their internet to speed it up or a lot of physical means that come with that. But then I think we're also learning, for example, with practices 
that we need to find other ways to help our employees that are coming into work still in these challenging times. So whether that's helping out with childcare or you know, making more flexible schedules. I think schedules especially are being highlighted as you know, people have to go into isolation. We have to make a lot of changes very quickly. I think we're learning to cope with being very fluid, um, supporting each other a lot more than we used to and being much more understanding of everything because we're, you know, we're kind of forced to understand that. You know, we're having to make decisions now that are very beyond our control. But I think that's a good thing. And it's gonna hopefully set a precedent for, you know, there's more to life than work. Um, and not just for ourselves, but for those that we work with, that we need to support that people have families and, you know, they need to look out for their families or deal with the challenges their families are creating if they have kids at home that can't get to childcare. Um, and I think that's, it's bringing a lot of things to a head and to the light that we've been kind of talking about quiet for many years, but now is really coming to the forefront. Um, because we're being forced to address it. And so I think that's good. I think it's good for employers to understand the true needs of their employees um, and start to develop strategies to deal with that now that hopefully we can continue to implement into the future. Yeah. And it, it's very isolating. You know, I, I imagine for you, not being at work for almost a year now, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's and not seeing your, other than I'm sure you do Zoom or some kind of meeting thing where you can see people on camera, but I find that the whole situation, and I'm sure this is, is true for people that do um, clinical work, it's still isolating, even though you're going into work and you're seeing the individuals that you work with, you're mostly just going home. There's not a lot of socializing. There's not a lot of family gatherings. And, um, and I, I find that with the people that I'm coaching, that is, it's adding to the stress because, because we have so much isolation. And, um, and I think what you say is true, that it is teaching us new ways to reach out and try to, um, you know, connect with people in a different way and, and be more understanding with the family issues and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely um, changed how I communicate with family and friends. It's a much more deliberate um, process of making sure that I'm staying in touch with people because, you know, we don't see them as often. Um, but also I think I've taken that to, uh, to my profession and my networking a little bit as well, because I know there are a lot of people that are, you know, somewhat isolated right now, or maybe looking for um, people to talk to, or, you know, just to make that human connection. And I've, I found that with networking, it's actually been easier, I think, during the pandemic to reach out to people um, and grow a network, have informational interviews, things like that, because there are a lot of folks that are kind of clamoring to have some working in contact that want to have conversations and be able to kind of talk shop like they haven't been able to at work. Um, and so it's, I don't want to say it's been a good thing because it certainly hasn't, but it it's opened up doors that weren't open before. Um, people have been, from my view, much more willing to speak, especially via Zoom or phone call um, than in years past. Well, in different ways of thinking about it, you know, yes. different ways of thinking about your connections and, and where you're at. So if, if there's people out there that are, um, have been in clinical medicine, either for a short time or a long time, and they are wondering, you know, what is out there um, for them non-clinically, um, and how would they go about pursuing something like that? I know with the 
the boards are, it's pretty easy to get involved because they're all volunteers. So if you want to be on your local association board, if you want to be on your state association board, oftentimes it's just reaching out to, you know, the CEO or the, the person that runs the organization and telling them you're interested in becoming a part of it. But what would you recommend that someone would do if they really were thinking about getting out of clinical and going into some sort of non-clinical situation? Sure. So I think I think my first step would be to use the association resources at your disposal. So joining boards is one of the best steps you can take, but also you know, making your ambitions clear and known to um to different representatives on boards and seeing who they can get you in contact with. So if you want to, you know, you know, talk to AVMA, talk to MDMA, talk to AADP and tell them, you know, I want to make this career transition. This is where I think I'd like to end up. Who could you put me in touch with that's in this field? I can guarantee that almost anybody at an association is going to be more than happy to give you four or five names of folks in that field that you can then get in touch with to help you with that career transition. Um, I also spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, um, even though, you know, not everyone loves social media, but you can do a lot of excellent searching to find where you want to be on LinkedIn. So, you know, type in your, um, your desired field and then uh, maybe a company or an area that you'd like to be in and just find some folks to reach out to and to start asking questions, ask them, you know, what do I need to do to transition? How could I better prepare for a transition? What kind of things should I learn about to be, you know, to make myself a, a very good candidate for one of these jobs? Um, to me, everything always comes back to the network and being able to rely on your network. So the more you can broaden your network, the more questions you can ask people, the more prepared you're going to be and more comfortable you're going to be to make that career transition. Um, you know, by making those connections, you also might open doors to the job you want. You know, by telling someone, I want to transition to this field. They might say, well, you know, we've been looking for this position to be filled for X amount of time. You know, why don't you come in and interview? You never know what kind of doors that might open. And is there, a, is there a space or a place where someone can go to see what, like, what if you don't know what's available? Um, is there like a place where you can go and say, okay, here's everything that's available for veterinarians in, um, you know, in the field? I know that's kind of a broad question, but, um, you know, what yeah. if somebody just says, I want to get out of clinical medicine, but I have no idea what I want to do? Like, so, where would you, where would you think you would tell them to maybe start? Would it be to talking to somebody like you that's been through it or? I think there's, there's three places I would start. So either okay. with somebody like me or, you know, that's, that's been through it and been in non-clinical medicine and understands what jobs are there. Um, or you can reach out to um, the American Association of Industry Veterinarians. They're going to have a great grasp on what kind of jobs are available on the industry side of things. Or the American Association of Federal Veterinarians. I think it's Federal Veterinarians. Um, and they're going to have a good grasp on the federal side of things. Now, there are obviously a lot of jobs in state or non-governmental organizations as well um, that might be a little harder to find. But if you can at least get your foot in the door with one of those two groups, they're going to be great resources to start putting you in the right direction of what might be available. Um, so it's, I didn't it's even know those cool. existed. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, didn't know those associations existed. There are a lot of you know, small groups out there that are very highly connected. Um, 
if you can get an in like with somebody in kind of the DC space here, if you're interested in moving down here, it's a very tight knit group of veterinarians that work down here. We all know each other fairly well. Um, if you're interested in science policy in general, there is a, uh, a single resource or a very large document of all of the fellowships you can apply to uh, for science policy. And I can share that. Um, it has nothing to do with veterinary medicine, but it's a way to kind of at least see um, different ways across the country to get your foot in the door in science policy if you want to step out of the animal health realm for a little bit. And is this is it something, if you wanted to get into something like you do, is it something that just somebody with a DVM could do or do they need advanced degree like you have? No, not at all. I think, or um, sorry, not at all that you need an advanced degree. I think a DVM is more than enough. I mean, not um, that DVM isn't advanced. No, yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. mean to insult anybody's DVM because I'm very proud of mine, but um, I don't have a PhD, so, you know. No, yeah, absolutely. I think this year's fellowship class of the, the group I'm with, I'm the only one with an advanced degree. Uh, or another advanced degree, I think. A second one, yeah. Yeah, a, sec a couple um, might have uh, masters in public health or something like that. Um, but I know there are several that have a DVM alone and are doing excellent with it. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's really a necessity to have any other kind of advanced degree. A DVM is more than enough training in epidemiology, public health. Um, you know, I think we take for granted how many communication skills come with a DVM, especially if you've been in practice. Mm -hmm, for Being sure, able to yeah, talk to great. clients and talk to other folks in your team, that is extremely valuable when you're in a um, you know, government office that's interfacing with the public to be able to have those communication skills. Um, you know, that's something that's very desired. So I, I don't think you need any advanced training. Certainly if you want some, you know, there's uh, edX, is a online class um, through several Ivy League schools. They offer online classes. There's Coursera. Um, Kansas State offers a graduate certificate in regulatory medicine. So there's a lot of online courses you can take, several that are free. I still take, I try to take one every six months or so just to you know, learn about new fields. I think those are great ways to show that you're being proactive uh, and try to learn something and get up to date on maybe what's happening in a different field. But by no means do you need to take anything like that or do anything extra. Well, and that's something that if somebody thinks they might be interested, they could do in preparation, maybe, is take a take one class and see how they feel about it and um, you know what they can learn and see if that's really that interesting before they give up their um, clinical job. Yeah, absolutely. So I have... I'm seeing, especially since COVID, but probably even before, that our profession is getting um, to the point where we are struggling to keep enough people in clinical medicine. And so here we're talking about people getting out of clinical medicine. Um, do you see that as a future issue for our profession? Are we going to run out of people that want to work clinically and, and are going to go more into industry and um, the corporations, because there's so many corporate um, mm -hmm. practice owning entities now that um, people can work for them. Do you see that as a potential problem ongoing for our profession? Yeah, I think it, it, it speaks to the broader issue of, you know, why we feel a need to leave clinical medicine, obviously. Um, I think it's going to help that we have more vet schools coming on board. Uh, they're going to help with the Kind of dearth of veterinarians right now that want to be in practice. 
Um, so that should help. I think right now we definitely see the issue of less people being in the industry, but I think there's several reasons for that. You know, one is we still don't do a great job of supporting people that start families and keeping them in practice, mm-hmm. especially with the, the gender divide we have in our industry. You know, I think we need to do a much better job of ensuring those that start a family will either continue working or come back to work and don't leave the profession um, once they do so. And I think we need to take a much more serious look at you know, why people don't want to be in clinical medicine. I think we know why, um, but is everyone, especially practice owners and the industry itself, you know, are they taking enough steps to try to stop that? I don't know. Um, I think there are some of the kind of conglomerates that are doing a better job than others in supporting their veterinarians and trying to prevent burnout. Um, but I think that's something that eventually either everyone is going to have to face or, you know, take a proactive step towards, because like you said, we are going to start seeing more and more restrictions or availability of veterinarians. And that's going to become a bigger issue if we don't address it sooner rather than later. Yeah. And being in clinical practice since the beginning of COVID the demand has gotten so high for us. And I've talked, yeah. I talked to um, some veterinarians just recently that I'm going to have on the podcast about um, just the sheer volume of clients that want to get seen and there just isn't the space. And so then, you know, working the veterinarians in the clinics harder and longer and um, you know, it just, it, it, something has to give at some point. And, um, and I, and I'm afraid it's going to be our profession. I hope, I hope that it doesn't collapse in in and on itself, but, um, you know, that's one of the reasons I do what I do is I want to encourage people to stay in veterinary medicine in whatever capacity, you know, whether it's non-clinical or clinical, but just keep people, um, in this profession because it is such a, a diverse, um, you know, a diverse profession. There's so many things that we can do with it. And I think this is an area where policy can also step in a little bit. Um, you know, we've seen at AVMA discussions around telemedicine quite a bit um, and love it or hate it. I think telemedicine is going to come to the forefront more and more. And it could be a very good solution to a lot of our problems. There are obviously issues associated with it, um, you know, but it, having a discussion about it and how we can apply it to veterinary medicine, I think, is one of the ways we can potentially know, reduce the burden on some of our clinics um, and help some veterinarians find a career where they're not necessarily in a clinic, but still able to practice medicine in some way. Um, So I think there are are policy changes we can make and approach on both the state and federal level to help with this. Yeah, I agree. We've done a little bit of telemedicine in my own practice, and it is a little challenging, but, you know, it it is a good solution in some instances, you know. Um, because especially with COVID, we've had clients that can't leave their homes and they still have pets with problems. And, you know, um, it's been a little challenging with older people sometimes to try to get them to use the, the, um, phone properly so they can show you things. And, you know, can you show me the ear? And, you know, they're trying to steer the phone, steer the phone. But so that's been entertaining, but, um, but I really do think that on some level that is a great solution. And I, I hope 
that the associations and the government and everything will kind of back that development, mm-hmm. you know, that, that actually not try to squash it you know, and regulate us out of it. So what else would you like to say to um, people that listen to this podcast that are either um, clinical or non-clinical, but um, in this profession and, and what else would you like to, to uh, give them as far as advice or tell them about what, what it is that you do um, to help broaden their, their knowledge and broaden mine, because I don't know exactly uh, about it all either. Yeah, I think the thing that I've always, and this is something I've always kind of thought about a lot since vet school is, I think we, we take too much pride in making our lives difficult. Um, you know, I saw it in vet school, everyone, you know, you talk about how hard you worked the night before, how long you stayed up, um, how long it's been since you've had a great meal or this or that. And it, it, it almost people took pride in it. Yeah, like um, a badge of courage, right? Right, exactly. I, I, there's nothing wrong with hard work. Absolutely not. Obviously, all of us work extremely hard, and we should. Right. Um, but I think we need to change the norms of you know, how we talk to each other and how we gloat to, I took this time off for myself, or I took this time off to be with my family. Um, and we need to normalize not working hard sometimes. Um, I see it a lot on the kind of online forums of when clients reach out to us at the 11th hour or um, on weekends, you know, how do we serve them? And there's always a debate of you should go always go the extra mile for a client versus no, you know, that's your time. You're off the clock. You need to be done. And I think it's, it's something that's changing over time, but we need to make sure we're prioritizing ourselves when it comes to things like that. You know, yes, we might lose a client, but in the long run, if we're not taking care of ourselves, if we're not taking care of our practice staff, we're not taking care of our relationship with our family, then the clients are going to suffer anyways. Um, and so I think it's something we need to normalize taking care of ourselves, talking about it, and that not everything is about the business right now. Maybe it's about the business in the long run, but we should consider what really goes into the long run business then if we want to have that conversation. And a lot of times that starts with mental health family, taking care of yourself, um, you know, and if that means, you know, stepping away from clinical practice for a little bit, maybe that's a good idea. It doesn't have to leave forever. I've seen several veterinarians who will, you know, go from clinical practice to a more either regulatory or clinical research field for a few years and then come back because they missed it. And that's fine. If that's what it takes, you know, to kind of reset for a little bit, I think that's fantastic. You just had a chance where you can kind of pull back reset, get back to where you love medicine again, and then get back in. I think that's a wonderful way to go about things. Well, and I, um, in my career, because I did do clinical medicine and I did buy my own practice and I was the owner, I did that specifically so I could call my own shots because Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to have a family and children. And I was like, okay, if I'm the owner, I can close the place if I need to. I can leave early. Nobody can tell me I can't. And speaking from somebody who's got grown children and went through that, it flies by it. You know, you will, if you, if you allow yourself to miss out on that, those few short years, it's like 18 years, you raise your kids, right? If you allow yourself to miss out on the school plays and the, 
you know, my kids were musical. So the concerts and the, all of that, um, the sporting events, then you're not going to get that back. And um, you can always work, you know, like there is always plenty of work to do. And um, I don't know why as a younger veterinarian, I had that kind of um, that motivation to decide on purpose that I wasn't going to um, miss things out with my kids. Like I wasn't going to miss out on family events. I wasn't going to miss out on school events. And my kids might tell you differently because they had to go to latchkey and, you know, daycare in the summer. So they'll tell you how they suffered because mom worked, but, but I literally didn't miss much, you know, because Mm I, I decided that on purpose. And now that I'm, um, you know, they're grown, I'm so happy that I didn't. And so I, always encourage um, younger people that want to have a family to really decide on purpose that that's what you're going to do and, you know, work hard when you can and then Mm -hmm. take your time off when you can and do the vacations and do the um, school events and be the copy mom, you know, on your day off because that's what I did and, you know, just be involved. And um, I think whether you're clinical or non-clinical, that's something that you have to purposefully decide and, and do. And if you're in a practice where you have a boss that doesn't allow that, then you need to find another place to work. Yeah. I think it's, it's important to know your worth. And like you said earlier, to know that there's a, you know, a need for veterinarians in both clinical and non-clinical practice around the country right now. So you are, you're an asset. You're whether it's the role you're in now or the role you're looking to next, know what you're worth, not just money wise, but, you know, ask for enough time off, ask for the benefits that you need, whatever it's going to take to be supportive of your family. Make sure that when you're having those conversations early in the kind of employment process, that you're thinking ahead of what it's going to take to make sure you can take care of yourself and your family for the next one, five, 10 years. Yeah. And don't indulge in the guilt. You know, that you have to leave a client because your kids are more important or your husband or your spouse or, you know, don't, don't allow that guilt to be part of your thoughts, even though you're going to feel it. um, You know, you got to be able to process it and let it go because the guilt is what sometimes makes us spend more time at work than we do with our family. And that's not, you know, not something that is going to be, um, something you're going to be happy about when, when your kids are grown or whatever. So, so is there anything else that we didn't talk about, um, about what you're doing now or something that you think might be interesting, um, that we didn't talk about? I wrote down a few questions, but I think we covered a lot of it. I don't think I have anything else necessarily. Yeah. Cause I think working in, um, outside of clinical medicine, I think part of your um, focus is the work-life balance, Um, but we can have that in or out of the profession. But I really think you talking about the different options for people non-clinically is something that isn't always taught to us in vet school. Did you think think that 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 wasn't covered for us? I think we had speakers maybe in lunch seminars come and talk about some of the roles um, that veterinarians could you know, take on, especially when it, I remember we were talked to by folks in the military quite a bit about the roles that veterinarians played in different military 
um, applications. But aside from that, I don't think we saw too many um, outside of that or CDC maybe. Um, but I think, you know, non-clinical medicine, especially for me, I think we, you do see a much better work-life balance, very, which is a kind of very generalized, but kind of very broadly speaking, I think because it's, you know, regu- hours are much more regular, typically, if you're not necessarily in the research field. Um, and because you're working for larger corporations, many times like the government, um, you know, they're focused on helping you to take care of your family. You know, I, in the position I'm in, I work 40 hours a week, uh, which means I get every other Friday off with the way I structure things. Um, I get, in my opinion, plenty of vacation time, lots of holidays off. Um, so it works very well for me. And that's something that a lot of clinics might not be able to offer. Um, same thing that goes with benefits of working for a larger company, you get a lot of benefits that go along with that, that some clinics might not be able to offer. Um, it, it's, that's very, again, broadly speaking. Um, it's also very less physical, uh, which I know for some people can become an issue, especially if yeah. you're in a career. Um, yeah. you know, right now having, it's very physical in the clinic because we don't have right. clients to help us hold on to their crazy animals. And so it, it yeah. is more physical. And especially, yeah. I mean, you large see a animal. small animal and especially large animal, you know, mm-hmm. as, you know, that can cause a lot of problems. I know a yeah. lot of younger vets that are facing shoulder issues, you know, in dairy medicine and have, have to leave practice already at yeah. the point they can no longer even practice. Um, so I think it, it's just an option to solve many, some different problems. Not everything is great in non-clinical medicine, obviously, but there are positions out there that can solve certain problems depending on what your needs are. Um, and I think it's something people should just keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, um, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. It was really fun talking to you. I'm still very fascinated about exactly what you're doing. Can you tell me like on a day to day, like if you, if you can kind of what's your day? Like I'm, that's what I'm, I guess I'm wondering is what is your day like? Sure. So my day is essentially I wake up and I, uh, I answer emails for about an hour, half an hour, maybe, um, kind of whatever the thread was from the day before and continue that going with my team. Um, we can't video conference, um, because of some of the restrictions on our computers. So oh, we do a okay. lot by email, um, and because of security. Yep. Because security, okay. we can't video conference. Uh, we can call, but we don't typically do large calls. Um, and so we email most of the time. So we spend a lot of time on email. Um, typically once or twice a week, we'll get a paper, we'll come in uh, as a submission to the journal. And so I'll review it. I'll fill out a form that kind of discusses its, um, its technical qualities, if it's up to merit to receive peer review. Um, so I'll go through those one every couple of days um, and then talk to authors about, you know, yes, your paper was great. We'll pass on to peer reviewers or no, here are the things we should discuss and we can work on together to try to get it up to snuff, uh, you know, so that it's, it's ready to move on and keep going, whether that is um, you know, grammar or the technical quality, or if they need to redo some experiments to kind of make it correct, if you want to say that, or, you know, good enough. Um, and then a lot of my job is also outreach. So because we're only performing, we're only publishing controlled unclassified and classified research, it's, it's, difficult to know who is conducting that kind of research. It's not a database or a list of who's doing classified research, obviously. So a lot of my day is kind of going through different labs throughout um, the 
Air Force, Army, uh, Navy, and all their research groups and just kind of cold emailing people or calling different researchers and saying, hey, if you do this kind of work, we'd love for you to come submit to us or peer review for us. You know, mm. um, how can we help you to increase your publications? Um, and we also do a lot of other work as part of my, um, we call it the Defense Technical Information Center. We take in a lot of technical reports. We're kind of a, um, a Wikipedia, if you will, or a PubMed for inside the DOD. Um, so it's a lot of outreach, working with authors, working with researchers to make sure that, you know, their research is getting the kind of uh, eyes on it that it deserves. Um, and that also that they can find the kind of information they need to support their research. That's really interesting. Hmm. See, I never knew. Yeah. <laughs> I never knew you were out there doing that kind of thing. Well, that's amazing. All right. Well, I thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was really fun learning about what you do. And if somebody's out there and this has sparked their interest in non-clinical medicine, it, are you somebody that would be willing to um, you know, email with them to get a little more information on what what you're doing and where they can turn for advice and, and help in pursuing that kind of career. Yeah, absolutely. You can um, find me on LinkedIn. I think just Matt Kuhn, um, or you can email me directly. Um, my email is Matt Kuhn, K-U-H-N. Uh, so Matt Kuhn DVM at gmail.com. Um, so yeah, feel free to email me, find me on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, um, actively follow all of them and happy to chat with anyone. Great. Thank you so much. Well, it was so nice speaking to you today. Thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you um, not really volunteering, but agreeing. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much to for talk having to me this today. Was it was really fun. Yeah, I, I yeah. enjoyed it a lot. All right. Well, everybody have a good week out there and um, I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Matt Kuhn. He is super intelligent, super interesting. I just really like talking to him. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you are enjoying this content, let me know. You can send me an email or go to my website, juliecapel.com or veterinarylifecoach.com and let me know what you think. You can also go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. That would be amazing. So I hope you all have a beautiful week and I will talk to you again next week with some more guests. Stay strong and stay positive. Bye.